Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your salvation and life that you bring to us by your grace. We pray that you would uh, teach us as our, our master, our instructor, for we are your disciples, and we come to your word uh, to listen to you, to learn more about you, that we might worship you and follow you. We pray this. Amen. All right. And I put it down again. Let's go to the back of the hymnal or to your copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Today we're looking at chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. Last week we looked at the covenant, uh, God's covenant with man, and how he made a covenant in man's original state where he was sinless, did not need redemption, and the condition was perfect obedience, and yet man fell so that he could not have life from that covenant anymore, uh, was condemned to death, and yet God was pleased to make a second covenant to bring us out of that state of sin and misery into one of salvation and life by a Redeemer. And of course, in the Catechism, the next question is, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Does anyone remember the answer? Jesus, that's the short answer, yes. Um, And we'll get into some of the details that are given uh, in the rest of that answer and in the Confession of Faith uh, concerning Christ, the Redeemer, or as it puts it here, the mediator um, of God's elect. He is the one who brings us out of sin and misery into salvation uh, and life. Now, this is a pretty long chapter and a rich chapter, so my plan is to break it up into two parts as we look at it. Today, we'll look at uh, about half of it, four of the paragraphs, and then we'll look at the rest of it um, next week. But if you were to be asked, let's say you are evangelizing at one of these uh, fairs this year, or if you were just talking to a friend and someone said, who is Jesus? Oh, where would you start? What would you say as you begin to describe who Jesus is? He is God. His creator. He's king. He is king. Mediator between God and man. Mediator. All right, good theme here that we're going on. Yes, mediator between God and man, which we'll get into our, our need of a mediator, right? He was not made. He was not made. That's right. That's what the Gospel of John says. Head of the church. Head of the church. Right. So what we're going to be talking about here, we've already talked about God and the Trinity, and we're going to review that a little bit again, because that is important, that he is God, he's creator. Um, That's where the Gospel of John begins, before it talks about how he became flesh for our salvation. Uh, But in this chapter, it's especially on his office, his office of mediator, or redeemer, or Christ. Um, And this is the, the duties, the 
responsibility, the office that he took upon himself and was charged with by the Father for the salvation of sinners. And so, as we also say that Jesus is God, we would also say, yeah, he's the the redeemer, the mediator, more particularly the the prophet, priest, and king of God's people that brings them salvation. Let's go ahead and begin with the first paragraph. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, and the head, sorry, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. <clears throat> and so this paragraph uh, begins with the fact that the only begotten Son of God was chosen and ordained as the mediator between God and man, uh, particularly between God and, and sinful man, man that needed a mediator. Uh, in First Timothy 2, verse 5, it plainly states, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Now, it says that he was chosen and ordained for this office before the foundation of the world. It's not that God was going along with plan A, and then man sinned, and then, oh no, what happened? I didn't see that coming. No, from before the foundation of the world, the Lord Jesus was chosen and ordained for this uh, purpose, for this office. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it's a long sentence, so I'll begin in the middle of the sentence. Uh, I'll go ahead and begin with... Well, no, I'll, I'll read t- verses 20 through 21. Speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, how is Jesus foreknown before the foundation of the world? Um, it's not like God looked down the corridor of time and wondered what Jesus was going to do and then decided to, you know, to, to, to choose him. That's, that's the way uh, Arminians will often think of the term foreknow, uh, but that's not what foreknow means when it's referring to sinners, and it's not what foreknow means in this passage either. Uh, it's, again, a word for basically choosing, and, you know, knowing beforehand that he uh, knew him and he knew him for this purpose before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So this was God's plan from the beginning. Um, This was prophesied beforehand in Isaiah 42, speaking of the Lord Jesus. God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so, in addition to being God, Jesus has been chosen, ordained, uh, as our mediator. Uh, Other words for this office are 
Christ, uh, Messiah. Does anyone know the, the difference between Christ and Messiah? Yes, yes, exactly. So there's not much difference between them. It's just different languages that are being used. Uh, Messiah being the, the, the Hebrew or Aramaic form of the word and Christ being the Greek form. But both mean anointed one. One anointed, set apart for this office, um, redeemer. Now, so in addition to Christ's natural dominion as God, that he has dominion over all things as God, he's also given authority. He's also given power um, in this particular respect, for this office, for this purpose. And so scripture uses words like chosen, appointed, ordained, given, uh, not as if he gains his divinity, you know, because, because of this, but rather that he is uh, installed in this office for uh, sinners. Now, God didn't need to appoint a mediator for sinful man. Uh, the triune God did not need to uh, to come up with this plan to will man's salvation, but um, he did. And so, in addition to being God, Jesus is also the Christ. Uh, he is uh, the mediator. <clears throat> now, as the confession of faith uh, describes this, there's a threefold office of mediator. There's three uh, uh, aspects of this office in which he saves us, uh, and these three were prefigured in the Old Testament, uh, kind of separately, but they come together in the work of Jesus Christ. And what are those three offices, or those, that threefold office? What are those three things that we think of when we say Christ? Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Uh, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, all of these were anointed offices in the Old Testament, being set apart for this particular role. Uh, can you think of a, a prophet in the Old Testament? Elijah. Elijah. Yeah, Moses would be another one, right? A prophet. And there's even a prophecy in, in Deuteronomy that God would raise up another prophet uh, to, to lead his people, kind of like Moses. Jeremiah was another one, right? But the, gr- the greatest prophet of all is Jesus. And he's a prophet in the sense that he fulfills that office, but he's more than a prophet. He's God himself, the son revealing his father. So as Hebrews says, in, many, in the past, God has spoken in many ways through the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken uh, by his son. And so his son gives the, the final word, uh, revelation of his father. And as Peter says, uh, Jesus was even evidence already in the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ inspiring these things in the prophets. And so he is, part of his role is to reveal the will of God for man's salvation, uh, to reveal God to sinners uh, that the elect might be saved. Uh, He is our teacher. We are his disciples. Who are some priests in the Old Testament? Melchizedek, yes, yeah, start with the most obscure one, <laughs> but very, very important one, yeah, Melchizedek. What was that? Eli, Eli right, he was a priest. He, he didn't do a very good job in the end, but he was a priest. And that reminds us that 
the Old Testament figures, there were prophets and priests and kings, but they, none of them were you know, able to save the people. They themselves had their own sins, but they pointed to the one who would fulfill their task. Um, Aaron was another priest. Uh, Phineas was a priest. Um, yes, Melchizedek was a priest as well. But Jesus is our priest, our high priest, the uh, uh, fulfilling that role so that the priesthood of Levi is, is ended and the uh, new priest is after the order of Melchizedek, um, one who is also a king and who continues forever that he might uh, bring us to God. A priest, uh, his role is to appear on behalf of the people before God. Hebrews describes the work of a priest in chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, and Christ fulfills the office of priest by reconciling us to God by a sacrifice for sins, which is even his, himself, and then also making continual intercession for us, uh, appearing at the Father's right hand, uh, applying that, that redemption for our uh, forgiveness, for our sanctification, that we might be brought to God, reconciled to him, and given mercy. And then, finally, Jesus is also the king. Not just the king of all the worlds in the sense that he's God and is sovereign as God, but he is the king of God's people. Uh, He reigns on the throne of who? Whose throne does he reign on? This is a trick question. There's two different answers. Yes, he reigns on the throne of, of God at his right hand. Who, who's, who also does he succeed? The throne of his father, David. David. Yes, uh, he is both, of course, son of God and son of David. And it's as the king of Israel, the, the king of God's people, his, his saved people, that he might save them from their sins. He is their king to deliver them, to subdue them to himself, to uh, bring them out of being outlaws, but rather to be citizens of the kingdom, to protect them, to preserve them to the end, uh, to restrain and conquer their enemies. Just as David was a king over the people to give them peace and rest, like a shepherd who would protect the sheep against the wolves, to keep them alive, to feed them, David was taken from being a literal shepherd over sheep to be the shepherd of the people. Um, Micah speaks of not only David as, as shepherd, but as one who would be raised up, the Christ, the Messiah, who would shepherd his people Israel, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is our king. Um, for him to be merely the king would is significant. All people ought to obey him. Psalm 2 warns uh, all people and rulers that you must submit to this king or else uh, he is a king that also overthrows his enemies who resist him. Uh, But we can have great confidence who believe in him that he is our king, our king for our good, a good protector and savior. So Psalm 110 brings together both his kingship and his priesthood, uh, that he is installed in this office at the Lord's right hand, that he has a mighty scepter and he rules in the midst of his enemies, and his people will offer themselves freely in the day of his power. So through his power, they 
become willing servants of the king. He subdues their hearts to himself. And uh, he also is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And all his enemies will be subdued under his feet. And so, as prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus saves us. And so he was appointed, ordained for this office um, from eternity past. This also made him the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, uh, to, to inherit all things that we might share in that kingdom and inherit with him, uh, that he is the judge of the world. To him, all judgment is committed. So that's why on the final day of judgment, it's particularly to the Lord Jesus that judgment is given, um, that he is the judge, that our, our mediator, our king, uh, is the one uh, who is administering that judgment. And then unto Christ, God gave from all eternity a people to be a seed, and by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. This is spoken of a lot in the Gospel of John. In John, it speaks much of how Jesus says, I'm doing my Father's will, that I have been given a people and uh, it is my mission to save this people. Uh, they are not saved yet, or some of them are not saved yet. Uh, some of them are not yet gathered into the fold, but they have been given to me by my Father. He will draw them to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. Or as he says in chapter 6, <clears throat> All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Chapter 10, he speaks of this people given to him as his sheep. Some people do not listen to him because they are not of his sheep, but his sheep will hear his voice and listen, and he lays down his life for the sheep to save them. It comes back to this in chapter 17, where Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him, notice this, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given him. You know, so he already had authority as, as God, but he has given authority for the sake of salvation, as this office of Redeemer, to give life, eternal life, to all that the Father had given him, to all the elect, uh, that he, uh, that is his mission. And so he prays that God would, would glorify him, um, that he would reward this, this work that Christ had done. And of course, we know that being obedient unto death, the Lord Jesus was exalted and brought to the Father's right hand and made Lord in Christ and given the promise of the Holy Spirit that he might apply that salvation. Now, some people will call this arrangement from eternity the covenant of redemption as, uh, as a distinct covenant from the covenant of grace, that there's this eternal covenant and plan between the Father and the Son, and then there's the covenant with us and the covenant of grace. Now, the confession of faith itself doesn't use that terminology. In fact, it 
in a larger catechism, describes the covenant of grace being made between God and the Son, and in him, the seed as his elect. So it actually is saying that these are really both parts of the covenant of grace. Uh, that there's an eternal aspect, this arrangement, uh, the, by the will of God. It's not like God and the Son made a bargain with each other. They have one will. They're, they're willing this together. But that there is this uh, arrangement between the Father and the Son from all eternity with the Spirit to save the same people that they have in mind, uh, to save those whom they've chosen from sin. <clears throat> Any questions on the first paragraph here? All right, let's go to the second paragraph. <clears throat> the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? All right, so we already had talked about how Jesus is God. He is very God, which is to say that he is true, truly God, um, that he is of one substance with the Father. There is only one God in substance, that he is co-substantial or co-essential, we might say. He is one substance, not simply of a similar substance, and he equal with the Father. But at a particular point in history, and in the fullness of time, he also became man. He took upon himself man's nature, uh, did not change his divine nature, but added his uh, man's nature to himself. Uh, he took on all the essential properties and common infirmities of human nature. What's, what's an essential property of human nature? Something, could, without which he be human. something without which he would not be human? Can you think of an example of what one of those might be? Having a body? Yep, yep, that's a great place to okay, start. A human body. A human body, right, right. <laughs> yeah, not a, not a lion of lion's body or something like that. Human body. <laughs> human body. Reasonable soul. A reasonable soul, yep. So the catechism just, you know, mentions those particular, a true body and a reasonable soul. So um, a soul that reasons, you know, uh, a rational soul. Yeah, so he has the same faculties, the same uh, body and soul. It's not like the divine nature took the place of his soul. That was one of the early church heresies. But yeah, everything that makes up a person or a human, um, he had that. But then also all his infirmities or common infirmities of human nature. Um, and so speaking not of the sin, of course, but the misery of our estate, the weakness. He, was, got hung, he hungered, he thirsted, he um, got tired, he felt pain, and of course he was liable to, to death. So he, he took upon man's nature and a mortal nature, uh, but yet without sin. And Hebrews describes this well, that 
Um, it was necessary for this work that he become like us in all things, yet, um, and, and being tempted like us uh, in all ways, but without sin. That he, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Who are his brothers? The people that God gave him. That's talked about earlier in that chapter. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so he hungered, he wept, he had human emotions and affections. He uh, still does. He has a, a will and a mind, although he is no longer in the the weakness and infirmities um, that, that we experience. He thirsted. Uh, he did not come, like I've said, as a man of steel, like some super, uh, superman, uh, some alien. No, he came as, as, as a man. And this took place by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived of her and born of her substance. Uh, so he, he took his flesh from Mary and was a, a true descendant according to the flesh from David, from Abraham, although was miraculously conceived without a human father. And so he has two distinct natures, and we should not blend them or combine them in such a way that they start to lose their distinctness. They're, it's not like a centaur, you know, part man, part horse. Uh, no, full and entire distinct natures that are not separate natures. They're not separated, they're united in one person, but they are distinct. And man remains uh, human and, and, and his divinity remains divine. This is affirming the Council of Chalcedon, which had said, uh, so when the confession says, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Let's not put them in a blender. You know, we're, we're not going to blend them all up. It's, uh, we want to recognize they remain, they continue to have their integrity as two natures, but are inseparably joined in one person. Now, with the time that we have left, I was going to cover paragraph three, but I want to, for now, just skip to paragraph seven and come back to three, uh, because paragraph seven uh, continues to describe the way these two natures work, and so it goes very well together with, chapter, with paragraph 2. It says, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. All right, so that's not in, extremely clear the first time you read it, but it starts to make sense as you... Uh, think about it. What's the person denominated by the other nature? Well, you can speak of Jesus as God. For example, you can refer to Jesus as God, but you can also say things of Jesus concerning his human nature while referring to him as God. So we can say that God shed his blood uh, when you are speaking of Jesus Christ. Not that the divine nature has blood, not that the, that the divine nature received human attributes, but that one who is God um, shed his blood because he also had his divine nature. And so scripture does that, like in Acts 20, verse 28, that the church was, is the church of God, which he uh, bought with his own blood. 
uh, and it can say that because of the union of these two nature in the one person, uh, who is both God and man, and acts according uh, to both natures. It's also important to realize that it's uh, precisely the person that is, that is doing things, and he, the person, Christ, uh, is working by each nature, acts according to both natures. So it's better to say, Jesus did this according to the flesh, or Jesus did this according to his divinity, rather than saying, the divine nature did this, or the human nature did this. Um, it is Christ who does things in accordance with both. And as both God and man uh, mediates between God and men, um, what's something that Jesus did according to his human nature? Died? Died, right? <coughs> what, Alfred? What is something that he did according to his human nature? What's something he did because he was man that he wouldn't have been able to do if he wasn't man? He wept. He ate. He ate. He slept. He slept. He fasted. He fasted. He was born. Right? What are some things that he did or does as uh, according to his divine nature? God. God. <laughs> yeah, he is God. <laughs> his miracle. His work in creation, right? Or of course, we're thinking of in his work of mediation, but you're right. Being creator was according to his divine nature. Yeah. He, he knows men's thoughts. You know, he's uh, aware of all his people. <laughs> you know, he, he has infinite understanding. Uh, knowing each one of his us, um, yeah, and offering a sacrifice. Not certainly the the dying part was because he was man, but the the infinite worth of that uh, and the the perfection of that sacrifice. Uh, right, it rose from the dead, walked on water. Now we'll also see in that in paragraph three, which which we hadn't gotten to yet. Uh, that his whole, the Holy Spirit was also involved uh, it, with his miracles, that he cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. And so there's, the uh, Holy Spirit's also involved, but of course they are one God. Yes? Yes, he is God. Um, and so we'll probably get into more when we go through the work of redemption in particular, but he works according to both natures, by each nature doing which is proper to itself. You know, so each nature continues to operate uh, according to its own principles. Human nature acts like a human nature, and his body remains in one place. You know, it doesn't become infinite. Uh, and uh, that does get connected with uh, later debates about the Lord's Supper, uh, Lutherans tend to err on the side of actually transferring attributes to the human nature. So they would say, like, Christ's body and blood could be everywhere around the earth because he's now glorified and shares some of those divine natures, and that's how it could be in each part of bread and wine, or with it, not, not become it. Um, but, uh, so they would, they don't usually affirm in Christology necessarily um, heresy, but they, but they tend to, toward that Air, um, 
uh, in the way they describe the Lord's Supper, which is one reason we'd say, well, that's not a correct view of the Lord's Supper, because it contradicts these, these affirmations we make about Jesus Christ. On the other hand, Reformed people, when they're not careful, uh, can tend towards separating the natures in a way that gets close to the opposite air of, of Nestorianism. Um, I don't know who came up with it, but you know there's the hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die For Me? I know at least two Reformed hymnals that change my God to my Lord. And I don't know if that's because they're uncomfortable with the idea of saying that God died for us. Um, but, you know, sometimes in, in an effort to distinguish ourselves from Lutherans, you know, that sometimes Reformed people will, will try to, to separate them too much. Realizing, though, we can speak that way because Scripture does so, as long as we keep in mind that the human doesn't become divine and the divine doesn't become human, but it's still one person that's acting according to both natures. All right. Uh, any questions before we wrap this lesson up? I know we only got through three of the paragraphs here, but we'll come back to this chapter next week as we speak um, more about how he carries out this mission. He has this mission. He has this office. He's charged with these duties. Uh, how does he go about doing it then and, and carrying out our salvation? And so we'll look at the rest of the chapter uh, next week. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for sending your only begotten and beloved Son uh, that he might uh, redeem us and justify us and sanctify us and bring us to yourself that we might have life knowing you, with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, from everlasting to everlasting. And we pray that you would unite with us uh, all your elect, that you would bring them to salvation through your word, uh, that, that your name would be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.